Hey, it's Joey Thurman. I'm excited to bring you season two of the Fad or Future podcast. We live in a world where information is everywhere, easy to access, and sometimes not always accurate, especially in the health and wellness space, which is exactly why I created this show. There's two sides to every story, and I'm here to present both and let you decide, is it a fad or is it the future? Health fads come and go, but the science behind them is what makes them work or fail. I'm bringing the experts to you and putting the facts on the table so you can decide how and where to put your efforts in your own personal health and wellness journey. What's going on? It's Joey Thurman. Here's another episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. The man, the myth, the legend sitting in front of me, Dr. Joel Seedman. I made four and a half hours of sleep. I think you can knock out this podcast. You'll, you'll be all right, brother. You are uh, truly a legend uh, in the training industry, uh, training professional athletes. You've really kind of been around the block. But first of all, thanks for taking the time and, and coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, man. Well, likewise, you're, you're, a, you're a legend yourself. So uh, it's, it's cool that we could, you know, do the podcast together. And like you said, I'm running on a little bit of a, a low fuel here, low sleep, but I'm kind of used to that by now. It's, that's the, the trainer's lifestyle, I guess. <laughs> Goes with, goes with it par for the course yeah it is well i'm i'm a legend in my own mind if you ask me that so yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> oh, uh you, you know i, I gotta build myself up because you know, hey man that's, that's the most important thing right it's it's better than knocking yourself down i know right that's right that's so, uh, our brother what is it uh for people that don't know you what is it that you specifically do yep so um, I'm about 25 minutes north of Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I basically um, have my own company, Advanced Human Performance, and I work with a, a wide variety of, of clients and athletes, um, from you know pro athletes, college athletes, uh, adolescents to elderly populations, special populations, bodybuilders, fitness enthusiasts, you know everyday working class men and women, um, uh, you know so it, it's a very ri- wide range that I work with. And I think that's, that's been huge for me because it's actually given me a, a great education, essentially working with this, this type of uh, a wide array of, of clients because it's, I'm not pigeonholed to one thing. And mm-hmm. then, you know, the more I, I see how, you know, to train an older person, it's like, wow, there's, I can see similarities actually between them and even an athlete. So it's, it's never just like, oh, you know, you train these people and, and you know, you have your niche, that's fine. You can have your, you know, your specialty, but I think training that that uh, diverse clientele is, is big. Wow. So grandma can be considered an NFL athlete is what you're trying to say? <laughs> hey, man, you, <laughs> I'm no joke. You would be surprised, though, because um, I a lot of my clients, and they, and they see this because, you know, I post videos of the, the NFL guys doing stuff, but they, they're like, oh, yeah, I saw you doing this same exercise with the NFL guys. So I do, you know, there are a lot of similarities. And as you know, you know, human body is the human body. Right. Their foundational movement patterns, um, obviously for my athletes, they're going to get a little bit more advanced with some of the, the crazy exercises, which we, we, you know, we can talk about. Yeah. But um, as far as the foundations, if the person's healthy, and even if they're not healthy, you know, just trying to uh, regress the exercise enough so they can do the, the foundational movement as best as they can. So. And, and and then that makes a ton of sense. I mean, you, you know, I think you've you've got to look at the individual and, and what their everyday is and what their body requires. But when when you break it down, I mean, people need to squat, they need to hinge, they need to push, they need to pull, right? And so, um, I think sometimes people get lost in the weeds. And I think seeing some of your content 
especially on social media, some people might take something and try to do something, some sort of crazy movements that some NFL athlete did. But if you don't know how to sit down properly or stand up, you probably shouldn't do that. Exactly. No, <laughs> no exactly. I think, I mean, that's the key. It's all about building the foundations and, you know, crawl before you walk, walk before you jog, jog before you run and, and building those basics and kind of ingraining them into the central nervous system so that when you do go a little bit more advanced and you progress it one notch further, mm -hmm. it doesn't just all break down. It's like, Hey, I can do this because it's almost the same thing that I just did last week. It's just one step further, one step further. You know, yeah. so I think a lot of people get in trouble because they see some of the crazy exercises or their bodies aren't ready for it. And they try jumping into it and like, Oh, I can do this. And it's like, Oh, that, you know, I hurt myself or it's like, Oh, you, you didn't build the foundations. You didn't. Right progress properly so so what would your advice be for um a beginner or somebody that maybe you know hey they played high school football and 20 years later they want to start you know doing the same weight that they did in high school and their body isn't prepared for it i mean for me it's sort of sort of similar but what is your advice for someone that just wants to start out um what should they really focus on yeah i mean honestly especially with you know all the covid stuff going on i mean body weight exercises are great you mm -hmm. know um, I, I will give a slight caveat to that in a second, but, uh, I, you know, this, this, this whole COVID thing, obviously, you know, you try and, uh, you know, see some of the, the pluses, if you can, of, of the situation. Um, and I, I think for people that work out, which I, which I believe everyone should do some type of training, mm -hmm. I think it's been a little bit of a blessing in disguise because it, it's forced people to kind of reevaluate their training. Maybe they don't have access to, you know, all these, you know, crazy machines, and all these free weights and, you know, all the equipment. So, you know, hone in on your form, your form, mm -hmm. work on your technique, master your body mechanics. Okay. And whether that requires you using very little weight, no weight, body weight, you know, if you have access to weights, whatever, but really focus on mastering the form, because when you do that, that sets you up to build a foundation so you can continue to make progress and not hit plateaus. Uh, and not just from an injury standpoint, which is obviously huge, but even from a, a muscle kind of hypertrophy standpoint you know when you're cheating the movement you're using a lot of momentum you're, you're putting a lot of pressure on the joints you're not really building muscle you're not stimulating uh you know hypertrophy or strength improvements or increases in the cross-sectional area of your muscle you're basically just getting better at demonstrating your strength and your ability to you know show your your numbers which isn't very effective and that plateaus very quickly and usually actually can start to to, to go backwards relatively quickly too so my my uh, you know best piece of advice there is master the form progress very gradually don't try and make these you know 50 pound jumps at once if mm -hmm. it's easy hey go up five pounds if that's easy go up a little bit more as long as the form stays perfect don't let okay. it break down yeah that makes sense so what were some common movements for people to start with Are you you prefer unilaterals um you know um multi-joint movements so uh, what is your kind of uh, progression for when you're when you're starting with somebody uh, actually, I, the first exercise I pretty much have every single person start off with, whether that's an NFL athlete, uh, an older person, um, you know, general pops, and, and if they can do it, okay, and sure. it's, it's a single leg stand, learn how to stand on one leg. Uh, that is probably, the, I mean, I'll teach people perfect posture, what that looks like, you know, hey, get your shoulders back. And then we will literally, our first kind of true exercise, if you will, is going to be single leg stand hey can they balance on one leg and it's not just can you stand on one leg but can you do it with proper alignment can you keep your feet straight can you keep your hips aligned can you keep your posture locked in keep your, your core engaged 
you know, how much are you laterally deviating? If they are deviating significantly, then we'll go into more of a split stance or like a, a you know, a toe touch stride hold, kind of like the, you know, the drunk driving test where they have one foot in front of the other. And we'll just hold that position. So it's kind of more of a, a semi um, single leg stand. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so that exercise right there, because when we wake up the feet and ankles, I'm a, I'm a big believer in uh, knowing how to fire the feet and ankles because that improves activation and recruitment up the entire kinetic chain. If, if the feet aren't firing well, good luck trying to squat correctly. Good luck trying to hinge, lunge, do anything correctly, let alone walk and, and you know, do all your things. So we get those feet fired up. Then once they feel what it feels like basically to grip the floor with their feet, activate, get their alignment, then we'll start moving into things like a body weight squat. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll maybe even go into some very light dumbbell exercises, uh, some planks, you know, glute bridges, bird dogs. Um, the one exercise that I'm, I'm very careful of um, to give people because it's, you know, it's a traditional body weight exercise is push-ups. Mm. Very careful on push-ups. I usually don't give push-ups right away because um, people don't realize this and it, it's not really common knowledge. I actually did a little research study when I was at UGA you're using approximately 67 to 70% of your body weight when you do a proper push-up. So let's say it's a 200-pound person, okay? That means they need to be able to bench press at least 135 or 140 pounds with perfect form mm. okay, to be able to do a proper push-up. And, you know, if it's a new person, obviously an athlete, that's fine. But if it's a newbie, somebody who hasn't worked out in a while, I'm probably not going to be putting them on 135 on bench press. So why would I have them start off with push-ups? Maybe negatives, okay, that's fine. They can yeah. even do kneeling push-ups or incline you know put their hands on a bench where it's elevated so you're not lifting as much of your body weight maybe more like 50 percent of it but uh so people need to be careful in my mind mm -hmm. of the the traditional push-up and the push-up's complex you know you, you gotta you know fire your core you're basically holding a perfect plank while you're going into you know uh, that, that chest pressing position a lot of people their elbows flare you know they're asymmetrical so mm -hmm. i usually like to start people with a basic dumbbell exercise or a dumbbell chest press if they can because you know we can start them off with tens it's a lot easier to teach. And then once they've gained a little bit of strength, we can go into things like push-ups. That makes a lot of sense because I, one of the, probably the biggest form errors I see is when people go into a regular push-up and they're, they're going down an inch or the elbows are flaring or their, their elbows are by their ears. And, you know, it just, yeah, you can do a hundred push-ups, but you did a quarter rep of, <laughs> of each of those. So uh, I really think people aren't even aware of like scapular retraction or bringing their shoulder blades back and it just it looks like a big mess so um yeah when i was in person training everybody i put them on a bench and start them on that that incline right away because exactly. it was it was much easier but uh yeah that's that's good advice uh so i did one of your programs as people know i'm a uh, i'm a guinea pig and what was the exact name uh negative isometrics uh, eccentric isometrics yeah it, yeah functional weight training slash eccentric isometrics program yeah, right eccentric isometrics so i did when, when, what day did i start i wrote it down i uh, started on october 22nd uh, and i basically finished this week so i did around eight rounds of this thing uh it was a little wild because there were some unique exercises and for anybody i mean you get yourself on a new program and, and, I, and I feel like if you do it correctly you're, you're going to see results but this is something that i've obviously done um, eccentrics and isometrics. And I want to get into that for, you know, what those are specifically for people, but I've never really combined them to this extent. 
Uh, and that was really unique for my body. So I'll, I'll give people my stats and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So in October, I started at 206.5 pounds, um, no poop in the morning. I did write that down. I've got no poop written, written on here. I, I didn't send that to, <laughs> to because that's a difference. You can lose about a pound or two dropping a good BM. Uh, I was 206.5. Um, and as of yesterday, I was 215 pounds. So I put on eight, eight and a half pounds. My abs are still showing. My chest went up two and a half inches, arms quarter inch, quads half an inch, my calves half an inch. Those needed some work, but I'm six three. So what are you going to do? Uh, so yeah, I, I put on some size and I got really strong doing that. So can you explain um, what that program specifically is and what uh, eccentrics and uh, isometrics is for people and how they can incorporate that? Yeah, well, let's, let's, with all transparency, we got to be honest with the audience. You started off actually at 120, five foot four, and now look at <laughs> Yeah, you just sold a million programs. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You started off at illegal midget status, which is <laughs> an anabolic machine in eight weeks. Uh, good numbers there, though. Um, yeah, okay, so, so the eccentric isometrics. Um, I, so one of the things that program is it like, like you said, it's eccentric isometrics, um, but it's kind of the foundational eccentric isometrics I do. It's not quite as many of the, the crazy um, unique movements and, and that's for the purpose of kind of, you know, mastering the foundational and the fundamentals, which everyone should be doing. I still do a lot of those exercises myself. The eccentric isometric protocol, basically what that is, and I'll describe what it is and I'll explain why I use it. It's a slow eccentric okay so to a lot of people it looks like kind of your traditional tempo training okay mm -hmm. and then we have a pause in the stretched or 90 degree stretched position which again to a lot of people that would look like traditional pause training it's a little bit different and i'll get into that and then we basically do an explosive concentric the, the concentric is not too different than what a lot of programs do we kind of emphasize you know higher power um that compensatory acceleration basically trying to move the weight as fast as you can while keeping perfect form and not jerking and you know using excessive momentum or letting your body shift. So again, it's basically those controlled eccentrics with the pause in the 90 degree position. And um, it's not just going slow and emphasizing the eccentric for the sake of trying to put more tension on the muscles, which is great because that's a nice, nice benefit of this is that you get more time under tension during the eccentrics, which is a great hypertrophy and strength stimulus. But one of the keys with the eccentric isometrics is that you're trying to take advantage of improved kinesthetic awareness and proprioceptive feedback. Mm -hmm. So we got these little um, kind of uh, proprioceptive mechanisms in our body. And that means sense of feel, okay, for the audience. And they're, they're called muscle spindles or intrafusal muscle fibers. They're with, bent, embedded within our muscles, okay? And those give us all the sense of feel. They give us that kinesthetic awareness, that feedback, so we can feel and kind of uh, fine tune our positioning. To activate those requires the muscle to be stretched and tight, okay? So when we do things like eccentrics, guess what? We have enhanced sense of feel. So when we go slow, we pause, we lock it in, guess what? We're able to fine tune our mechanics. We're able to really dial in things to another level because we can feel what's going on instead of just going so fast where we bypass the movement. As a result, we can start to self-correct the exercises. We can start to tune into what's going on and we can, we can use all that feedback to fine tune our, our positioning. And let's face it, the name of the game when it comes to building strength and hypertrophy is progressive overload. Over time, trying to build more strength, a little bit more weight with perfect form. 
Best way to do that is improved neuromuscular efficiency. And neuromuscular efficiency is nothing more than basically mastering your body mechanics with perfect form. And this, in my opinion, is the best way to do it. So it just sets the person up for that long-term strength gains because they're, they're not only stimulating muscle each and every repetition, but they're not going to be um, you know, getting injured. They're actually going to be improving joint health um, and, they're, and they're improving their body mechanics, which you know, that's obviously, as you know, that's, that's huge. So. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was really interesting. You know, there were some there were some movement patterns and, and things on there that I haven't tried. And and for anybody, like, I mean, if you're a trainer, I feel like you should have a coach yourself and get on it because we all kind of fall into like a Monday's International Chess Day and then, you know, they go yeah. into your back day and, you know, all this sort of stuff. We fall into those same patterns. So um, I'm fortunate enough to, you know, be able to do this and kind of put myself as the guinea pig. But yeah, a lot of these things where you're you're going through the holds and the different um, movement patterns, and it really focuses um, you in, to be in tune with your body and aware of that. And for me, when I was, I, I didn't have access to a gym because I stopped the in-person training, so I only had dumbbells and Olympic bar and some bands. So I threw in some you know variable resistance stuff there too. But for me, slowing it down, holding it for an extra second or two, um, going going down a little bit slower was able to add that volume, even if I should be actually lifting a lot heavier weight during that movement. So I added an extra rep or two and you go with uh, perceived exertion on there as well. So I know that, um, I mean, in part of this, he sends like this whole PDF thing and talking about if you say six reps on there and say, I'm using a lighter weight, I sometimes I hit 10 if I had to, to really get to the muscle to that point of exhaustion. Um, so for people that are working out at home right now, what are some additional things that they can do to kind of get their body to adapt if they don't have access to, you know, extra heavier weights or, or, or different things? Yeah, no, that kind of um, goes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, using this time, uh, maybe not having all that heavy equipment to really dial in the form. And one thing, you know, that as you know, from the program, a lot of the rep ranges were a little bit lower. People aren't used to that. They're not used to seeing like, oh, like I'm only doing three reps or four reps. Like the highest number you'll see is like six reps. It's like, yeah. what's up with that? Isn't that like a, you know, only going to build strength and I'm not going to build any muscle. Well, it's all about the quality time under tension. And with mm -hmm. eccentric isometrics, the quality time under tension is two to three, for some cases, even four times higher than your tr traditional rep. So a set of five reps may last as long as most individuals uh usual or typical set of 15 reps okay mm -hmm. so it's not just oh five reps that, that's you know that's it when you do these properly and as you know when you slow it down focus on your form really tune into your you know your, your muscle mind connection that kinesthetic awareness each and every repetition requires a lot of effort so that's one of the things i'm always trying to emphasize with people is don't even th uh, think of it as like hey it's a set of five mm -hmm. i like to say think of it as five sets of one just take mm -hmm. one rep at a time master it nail it crush it you know 100 percent exertion maximal effort uh, and really focusing your technique and then move on to the next rep nail it make sure it's perfect if you have any like weird sensations of maybe a little bit of pain use that information to adjust the movement to fine-tune it because pain is actually one of our best coaching mechanisms in existence it's, it's part of our uh, you know, are, are kind of built in, wired into our DNA to, to act as a, a signal. When, when something hurts, it's usually because we're doing it wrong. So that's another thing when we're going slow. So um, doing a proper set of five, you know, like those front curled squats where you hold the weight in front, those are exhausting. Yeah. A set of five of those, you feel like you just ran two, three sprints, everything's fried, 
your heart rate's going through the roof, your, your core, your arms, your legs, everything is, is exhausted. So it doesn't require a lot of reps. It doesn't require a lot of volume to, you know, really stimulate and trigger strength and hypertrophy gains. It's all about the quality of movement. So a lot of people try to, uh, you know, produce high intensity workouts based on quantity of movement. And I like to produce high intensity workouts based on quality of movement and high quality of movement can give you some of the most intense workouts you've ever done more intense than any volume you could ever think of. So, um, you know, that, that's the key is, is really honing in on the form each and every rep. Yeah. And, and that's smart because, um, you know, I, I do some editing for a national online publication and there, there was somebody that was writing something about hypertrophy and like, Oh, I just do 10 reps of this and 10 reps of this. And I said, but, what is what is happening and and what's the weight and what's the volume that's added to it like well does that matter i said well if i did 10 reps of a pink weight and i could do 50 more versus 10 reps at 25 pounds and i can't really do that much more what do you what do you think is going to happen to this stimulus i'm like oh okay so yeah i think people get lost in like having to hit like 10 sets of 10 all, all, all this sort of stuff where they think about that hypertrophy when they're when they're looking at hypertrophy failing out at 30 to 60 seconds you know whether that's you know you doing a bunch of reps with a, a light weight or if you're, you're slowing it down i think it makes a lot more sense for people to really get that, you know, mind muscle connection yeah. as you're Yeah, you're no, definitely. And, and that's uh, one of the, you, you mentioned something about the RPE scale that I use. One mm -hmm. of the reasons I like to use the RPE scale is because it's very easy to, um, two things. First off, not go intense enough. Like you said, okay, you got to reach a certain exertion level, but at the same time for, for individuals that have been lifting for a while, when they start relying too much on their, their percentages of their one rep max, it becomes a numbers game. Mm -hmm. and they're always it's, it's getting in their head they feel compelled that they have to reach these specific numbers and beat their previous numbers otherwise they're not making progress they're going backwards they're weak they're emaciated you know the, the, all is lost so it's, it's sometimes it's good to get those numbers out of your head don't even worry like hey what did i do last time like yes that's good to, to periodically hey i need to bump up oh nice you know i made a nice improvement there but it's more important to make sure that the quality of the set and the, the, the effort is very high, regardless of whether or not you use, you know, five pounds more, 10 pounds less, sometimes taking lighter weight and using better form, you'll feel it a lot more. So again, that didn't mean that we had to go up and weight to produce high intensity. We actually had to reduce the weight to increase the intensity. Uh, and similarly, sometimes keeping the same weight and just getting your form better and better and better. That's one of the best forms of progressive overload in existence because your muscles they just proceed that same load that you've been using. They just proceed it as a heavier load, a stronger stimulus. Okay. And sometimes going heavier, guess what? Your muscles may perceive that as being lighter mm. because you didn't use the proper form. So again, our muscles are kind of dumb when it comes to understanding load that they know, you know, tension, they know time under tension. Um, there, there's some satellite signaling things going on there. Um, some metabolic stress as well and some muscle damage, but uh, a lot of that just comes down to it. Once again, quality time under tension. Yeah. I mean, your muscle doesn't know if you're lifting a 10 pound weight or if you're lifting a 20 pound weight, it knows what it feels, right? I mean, <laughs> you see a lot of these, you know, well, I always say gym, but you know, gyms are interesting now, but you see like a meathead swinging that big 50 pound weight and they just want to say that I, I curled 50 pounds, but did your bicep actually feel it? You know, or, or were you just using momentum? So if you're, if a muscle isn't feeling it, if you're doing hypertrophy training, you know, power or something else is going to be a little bit different. But if you're doing hypertrophy training, the muscle, that muscle is not going to grow, right? It, it, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. So, um, 
slow it down and focus on that that form. So there, there's something um, unique in in your program. I was hitting almost similar body parts every single day, which for a a lot of common knowledge, people say like, okay, you need to make sure you give 24 hours in between and you've you've got this delayed onset muscle soreness and your muscles need to repair. For you, there was sprinkled in, like there might, maybe it was like a heavy um, chest day or upper body day. And then there was like, there was like a couple like exercises for legs. And then the next day it might have been a heavy legs. I can't remember the exact order of it. Uh, But what is your reasoning behind that? Because most people are like, you shouldn't be doing the same, you know, um, body part two days in a row. Yeah. So as, as you mentioned, it's never going to be the same exercises back to back days. So I wouldn't have somebody squat a barbell squat, for example, heavy barbell squat two days in a row. Now I've done that with myself as an experiment, but as far as kind of, you know, what would be optimal for programming purposes. Um, so one of the things is that I'm always trying to include the, I call them the big seven or foundational seven movements in every single workout. Okay. So that would be squat, hinge, lunge, horizontal push and pull, vertical push and pull, because when we actually break down a lot of the human movements, even, even some of the rotational stuff, you can actually see how elements that I just mentioned with those seven, they're incorporated in there just with the subtle uh, twist, uh, no pun intended there. But um, so basically uh, with, with human movement. Okay. And I alluded to this earlier, the goal is becoming as neuromuscularly efficient as possible because the more efficient we become with our nervous system, the more capable we become of of handling heavier weights with perfect form, taking stress off the joints, targeting the muscles. And then we just keep, you know, making those, those steady gains. Um, And like any skill, the more we practice something, the better we get at it. Okay. So basically comes down to, you know, higher frequency of practice. Okay. And as we do that, we become better at the movements. We become more locked in with them because we're, we're basically having a chance to work on them every single day. If somebody's squat form is off, even if it's like 90% right. Okay. And it's, it's like almost there. The best thing they can do practice it every day. If they're feeling something like a weird twinge in their hip, guess what? Practice it. Use that pain, that sense of feedback as a, as a, source to like, Hey, how do I adjust this? How do I correct this? So I don't feel that pain anymore. And that takes time. It takes practice. And it's, it's sometimes it's even more than just the workout. Sometimes, you know, I'll tell clients, Hey, do a few body weight squats several times a day to work on your form. If you feel like you favor one side, if one side is shifting, fix it, mm. practice it. The, the better you get at it, the, the easier it will be when we want to go heavy, your body will be ready. It'll be locked in when we want to go and push the weight. It will be prepared for it. So again, it's all about that frequency of practice. But what's interesting is that the research is now uh, showing that full body training and, and higher frequency of training is actually more beneficial for uh, endocrine response, for, for hormones, for like testosterone, estrogen uh, balance, even uh, cortisol, as well as just overall, like when they, when they measured a hypertrophy hmm. response, they found that there was actually either similar or more hypertrophy and strength gains um, compared to doing body part splits. And, um, so it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to see, we're starting to see just a a little bit more research on that. Now there hasn't, there haven't been a lot of studies on that because it it just, you know, it's kind of a new, um, ideology, so to speak, but the, the several studies that have been done, they all show very, very favorable responses for full body training and higher frequency training. Um, so it's, and I think as we see more research come out, we're going to see that be substantiated even further. Now, is, is that probably having to do with more of a, a growth hormone response and muscle protective response? And, you know, you mentioned that the endocrine system, or do they really know specifically um, what's happening there? 
I don't think they, they fully understand specifically, you know, exercise science is actually a relatively new field, uh, so to speak. I mean, you know, there's obviously elements and a lot of elements of just human physiology and, and even medicine involved there. But as far as like some of the things with, you know, structural uh, muscle physiology, protein synthesis, rate of protein synthesis, um, you know, the anabolic response, the catabolic response, the mTOR pathway, satellite signaling, uh, eccentric loading, muscle damage, like it, there's so much we don't know about it, okay? Because it, it you know, if you tear a muscle down too much, okay, and let's say you're doing like just an excessive amount of eccentric overload, okay, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's studies that have shown a, a muscle can actually be so torn down that it not only takes several weeks for it to recover, it actually atrophies huh. because you tore it down so much. So there's like this balance of like, okay, you know, how much do you work a muscle so that it, it, it recovers and improves? Um, and so it, it's not as clear cut as like, oh, you know, hit the muscle and then let it rest for five to seven days. That is one way to do it. But again, a lot of times for natural uh, athletes and natural lifters, triggering that protein synthesis response, they do think triggering the mTOR pathway more frequently, like every 24 hours is uh, potentially more beneficial, especially for, for um, natural individuals who aren't using, you know, ergogenic days and steroids. So, and then triggering that mTOR pathway, that's basically, you know, Triggering protein synthesis or, or loading your body with substantial weights most days of the week. So, and, and again, some people may only be able to work out three times a week, but even still, if they can work out two or three times a week, I still recommend full body. If they can go five or six times a week, I still recommend full body, but with the caveat being that they may focus more on a, maybe upper body one day or chest one day or legs one day, but they're still practicing the, the big seven movement patterns. Mm. Now, is there a certain amount of sets per week per body part that you like programming for individuals or is it i mean you're, you're gonna have a you know your, your athletes that are going to be able to handle a lot more load but generally speaking if somebody's doing you know two or three days a week of a full body is there a, hey we need to do 10 to 20 sets of legs or do you get that specific with people yeah um I, I, I don't think of it like that, but it ends up working out like that. Um, essentially, you know, if, if you actually break it down, it probably ends up being similar to like, you know, body part splits where they're doing, you know, 10 to 15 sets and then giving it seven days off. And, and one of the things with that too is doing the, you know, just crushing a muscle and then just giving it seven days off. You trigger such a strong inflammation response that sometimes that excessive inflammation is not the, the best for the body. And, and mm-hmm. they're even showing that that may, uh, may not be the healthiest thing because all that inflammation is, is, you know, they're showing inflammation is kind of linked to a number of things. And I realized that acute temporary inflammation response from strength training is different than, you know, chronic inflammation, but there is some, a little bit of a correlation there and some similarities, especially when you're over tear a muscle down. And so what I, I like to do is I like to, instead of blasting the muscle one day and so that it's, it's shot, you can't target it, you know, for four or five, six days later, I like to say, Hey, you know, hit it, work it, and then let it come back, you know, the next day or two days later and, and work it again. So we don't crush it so much that, you know, we're impairing muscle function. And again, this kind of goes back to, as I said, muscle function. If the muscles are shot, they're sore. Okay. And think of it just from, a, I guess the most extreme uh, scenario would be for an athlete. If I take an athlete, okay. And let's say it's a football guy and they, they got skills work, they got sprint stuff. They got all these other, you know, football activities that they're doing and we crush their legs let's say on Monday, they're going to be shot. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe by Thursday, Friday, they're starting to come back around. Okay, so they're, they're losing speed, their legs feel shot, but also they're going to be more likely 
to be using poor running mechanics mm. because their, their legs are, you know, heavy. And a lot of that soreness and a lot of that cellular swelling in the legs um, and that, that fluid retention, it can actually alter proprioception. It alters mm. your sense of feel. So actually the running form can be off. So, you know, and, and you know, even though for uh, everyday, you know, fitness folks, they may not be running and doing athletic events. It's still similar. You know, you want to have optimal muscle function every day. You know, when you're walking, when you're picking things up, if you're so sore that like, oh my gosh, I can barely bend over. It's like, is that really optimal? So mm -hmm. I like that higher frequency of training. Yeah. If, if you can't sit down to take a shit without getting injured, it's, <laughs> it's, it's you probably, you, you know, you, like you, you, you always see that like, oh, I have clients like, oh, I, I, I didn't really feel the, the workout that much from the other day. I'm like, do you want me to de destroy you to the point where you can't walk? Like you need to have a life. You're running a company here. <laughs> exactly. Like, 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 like do you, who wants to see their CEO kind of walk in and struggling and like need a cane exactly. to sit down? I'm like, it's, it, it just exactly. doesn't make sense. Like, are you still seeing results? You still like getting stronger? Okay, great. You, you, you don't need to be <laughs> destroyed. Think, uh, Exactly. And then I'm going to start uh, putting a few wheelchairs in the front of my office and talk to you like, what's that for? It's like, oh, it's for after your workout. You know, you, you know you're going to need that in a, in a little bit. <laughs> we'll see, see how many people you, you get actually like, uh, all right, dude, I'm out of here. Like this, this, this <laughs> yeah, exactly. This, this dude is exactly. nuts. Uh, uh, so how do you, what, what's, what do you find is the, uh, kind of the biggest difference, the training a professional athlete versus your, you know, let's just go with average individual is. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, obviously the recovery is, is way higher. Mm -hmm. um, they catch on to the movements a lot quicker. And even actually, I would say even the difference between most of my Pro athletes and the and the even the college athletes, the difference between them, okay, the the college athletes that don't make it to the pro level, okay, it's it's pretty um, it's pretty standard now, just from what I've seen, that it's it's you can almost tell like the ones that don't, can't make it to the pros quite, they don't quite have what it takes, they usually don't catch on quite as quickly to the movements, their their sense of feel, their proprioception, their kinesthetic awareness, their ability to really kind of master their body mechanics. It's usually not as good. So I would say that there is definitely something to that. The better the quality of the athlete, usually the better they are at some of the, the movement patterns. And not always, okay, mm -hmm. because I have seen some rare exceptions um, where I've trained a few athletes, actually a few, of, ironically, a few of the highest level athletes I've trained. These are kind of the exceptions, but they are the ultimate exceptions because a few of them are pretty terrible in the weight room and then they are awesome on the field. But generally speaking, I would say that, uh, you know, efficiency of movement, their ability to catch on. But um, like we talked about, you know, if it's a 60 year old and they're, they're a, a business man or a business woman and they're, they're working a lot, you know, sometimes they can only handle two workouts a week, their bodies, you know, e even if they can handle a little more, maybe their schedules don't permit it. Whereas these athletes, you know, basically their, their lives are working out training, getting ready for their sport. So they have the, the resources, um, you know, financially and physically to, to be able to do all these different training modalities and spend four or five hours a day training, not, not strength training, but that would include, you know, an hour or a little bit more of strength training, their skills work, field work, you know, their speed and agility, maybe they're doing a few other things on the side. Um, so um, I would say that that's definitely the main thing. And then, you know, that's, kind of that difference between when I program some of those really advanced crazy movements that I'll post on Instagram, mm -hmm. not every client gets those. Okay. Right. And it, it really depends on how well they've mastered the basics. And I do have 
a lot of non-athletes who I'll give some crazy exercises to because they've demonstrated that they can, that they can do them and they've mastered the basics. And, and in contrast, I have some high level athletes who they don't spend enough time mastering the fundamentals and I'm not going to throw the unique exercises at them. They still need to work on the basics. So it's uh, you know, there, there are definitely some generalities, but at the same time, it's, it's individual uh, for each person. And, you know, I got some, 50, 60 year old clients that perform ridiculous. They're amazing. They, they, you know, a lot of my athletes look at them like, wow, well, will I be able to do stuff like that? Like, yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it just shows, you know, age is really not a, a barrier. It's not a limitation. It's just a number. Um, so it's kind of cool to see. Yeah, no, that, that is really neat. I mean, I played hockey through college and there are a lot of hockey players you've probably seen is that a lot of times in the weight room, they're not that great, but you get them on the ice and you put skates on somebody and, and it's a whole nother level. I think back in the day, like you know, hockey has kind of their combine. I don't think Patrick Kane could bench press his own body weight, but the guy's a phenom and one of the world's best players. So yeah, it wow. d- doesn't necessarily correlate, but as far as my actually buddy trains him, as far as him picking up athletic movements, he's like, this guy would have been a great point guard because like he, he can pick it up. I mean, you take a hockey player, they, they just have so much just awareness of their body anyways, because yeah. you know, anybody can run, not run correctly, but nobody, not everybody can skate, um, yeah. which, is a, which is a huge difference. So I think you're those high-level athletes. I think that's a, a very sound point. Now, as far as recovery, what is your kind of – I mean, because people are training so much. They're, they're working out a lot, whether it's a professional athlete or, you know, you got your – you know, 50 year old woman coming in there, you know, what, what is your go-to way for people to, to recover? Yeah. So, um, obviously, you know, nutrition plays a huge, huge role there. Um, you know, there's that old saying, I don't know if I necessarily buy it 100%, but there's no such thing as overtraining only under eating. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I I don't fully buy that, but I do think there's some merit to that and some truth to that. So Mm -hmm. I think making sure their diet's locked in, making sure they get enough high quality proteins, you know, um, healthy fats, carbs that's where we may manipulate a little bit based on their goals but um and then the other thing is too uh and i keep coming back to this because this is this is kind of what i i you know i didn't spend too much time talking about this earlier when you asked me about some of my background but um you know when i did my research in kinesiology and my phd one of the things that i looked at with eccentric isometrics is you know why are these so beneficial okay and um how do we maximize the recovery response okay and the recovery process one of the things that if you really start looking at kind of human physiology and structural physiology and even neuromuscular physiology is that the better someone's biomechanics are, the better they're going to operate, the more efficient they are, the better their recovery is. Okay. So if somebody has lousy form, okay, if they're squatting and you know, their knees are caving in they're they're, you know, they're shifting on their toes, they're asymmetrical, their shoulders are rounding over. Um, they probably, you know, if you, if you said, Hey, how often should this person squat? you would say not too frequently, right? Unless they clean up their form because that's going to take a toll on their body. And, you know, you take a 50-year-old person, they're squatting like that, that is going to beat them up, okay, big time. Uh, So as our form improves, so does our recovery because everything that we do is therapeutic on our bodies, okay? If you do a proper movement, even if it's heavy, okay, if you do it right, it really should produce a therapeutic response to the body. And, um, you know, even from a like a muscle damage standpoint, because a lot of people think, oh, well, that makes sense from a joint standpoint, but you know, you're tearing your muscles down. So what about that? Again, when you look at the research, a lot of the extreme scenarios of excessive muscle damage, okay, and having to take, you know, days and, and you know, weeks to recover, like I mentioned earlier, it can actually go back to overstretching a muscle under tension. So when we use excessive range of motion, 
we create this micro trauma and we're basically over tearing, uh, you know, the, the, the muscle tissue. And that's when it can take, you know, five, six, seven, eight days to recover. And it may even take longer than that. When we go through those natural range of motion with the actin and myosin, having that proper level of overlap and not being overly lengthened. Okay. Mm. We get just the optimal levels of muscle damage. And so a lot of my clients, they actually don't get too sore once they start getting into their, their training because the, the technique, the eccentric isometrics using those kind of 90 degree joint angles, which we didn't talk too much about, mm-hmm. but making sure they're not going too deep. That goes such a long way for making sure they're not, you know, going too deep into the recovery. It really enhances their recovery. Yeah. So, I mean, the, those 90 degree joint angles, angles. So if you're talking about like a bench press, right? So I've, I've got these big gorilla arms. I mean, I'm, they're huge. I think my wingspan is like six, seven and I'm six, three. Uh, so it's, it's strange, but if I was to come all the way down, right. And if people are going to imagine this, my elbows are way past my torso, then I'm, I'm past that 90 degree angle, but that then what happening is there is called neural inhibition. So then my body and the joints are going to take over, but by you shortening up that range a little bit, then the muscle tissue is on and the joint isn't forced to take all of that load. I mean, that's kind of what you were doing with, with the, you know, the bench press and and the squats and stopping at that nine degree angle. Um, And often I'm freakishly flexible. I mean, I can get my ass to grass. I can actually touch the back of my calves with my butt if I really wanted to. Um, but by shortening that up, I think that it, it did really, um, set my body up for uh, a different way to recover because as I talked about for me, like I'd always like, you know, legs and maybe shoulders one day and then chest and back and then make sure having proper recovery. But by doing that, bringing blood flow into the tissue almost seems like you're kind of rehydrating, you know, the muscle itself and bringing, you know, blood into it, which would help recover. So, I mean, I think the first day off I took, I think I did 14 days in a row. I think I sent you a note like, Hey, when should I take a day off? And you're like, well, when your body feels <laughs> like it's ready to take off. So I did like 14 workouts in a row, two rounds of this. Um, and then I took a you know a day or two off, but, and I went for like a light run because my legs were a little tender and that run was my recovery. Uh, so I think, a lot of people think about massage and foam rolling and cryo and all that sort of stuff, which there is a place that obviously sleep and nutrition is huge, but I don't think people think about movement as recovery as much. No, exactly. I mean, movement, it really is the the number one way to maximize recovery, you know, going through the basic movement patterns again. And if you are sore and your body's tender, just taking the weights and reducing them. But like you said, just going through those basic movement patterns, that's one of the single best recovery strategies that, that we can do getting blood flow, you know, into the muscle, um, you know, kind of waking the nervous system back up. So in case it maybe was feeling a little bit sluggish or lethargic, or, or maybe, you know, like you said, maybe you accidentally triggered a few inhibitory signals from doing some bad reps during the workout. Well, mm-hmm. you know, clean that up, go, go back to the same movements, just body weight and kind of reinforce proper technique and get your nervous system reactivated. So you take those inhibitory signals out. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, kind of reinforce those, those activation signals and recruitment signals rather than inhibitory. But that, inhibit, that inhibitory thing was, was spot on that you said, you know, going too deep, um, that often does trigger neuromuscular inhibition and mm-hmm. inhibitory signals that, you know, that can basically be a huge factor um, contributing to why a lot of people don't reach their numbers, why they hit plateaus and, and they get to a certain weight and their bodies shut the movement down because it's mm-hmm. a survival mechanism. If you're putting your body in a dangerous position with heavy loads, it is going to send inhibitory signals. And it's actually good that it does that because otherwise you would injure yourself more, more readily. 
So when we use proper positioning, when we use proper mechanics, when you go to 90 degree joint angles, our body has no reason to send inhibitory signals. It simply sends a maximal um, innervation and activation and recruitment signals so we can get the most out of our contractions and we can get the highest level of motor unit recruitment. And again, we go too deep, we start to shut those down because mm -hmm. our body's like, whoa, don't do that, you're, you're gonna injure me. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if we're talking about, you know, how do we maximize strength in the long term or hypertrophy, those 90 degree joint angles, that's, that's huge. Cool, well, I, you're a busy guy, I've got one more question for you. See, look at that, I'm, I'm right on time, man. Um, so where do you feel like the future of your industry is headed and what, what do you hope for? Hmm. Future of the industry. Well, the whole COVID thing definitely changed things. Yep. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, however that works out, I'm not, you know, we'll see, but I, I think as far as trends go in terms of, I always like to get more back to kind of the, the hardcore elements of training. I think that fitness industry, if things go right. Okay. And, um, we really start to look at, you know, what's working. I think we're going to start seeing a trend more and more of people, getting away from excessive mobility and flexibility and this whole like, oh, we need more range of motion. We need more mobility. We, we got to, you know, get greater end range training. Like, I think we're going to see a shift away from that. Mm. And if people understanding that there is such a thing as optimal range of motion rather than maximal range of motion, and they're two very different things just because our bodies can kind of contort and manipulate to an extreme excessive, you know, uh, manipulate position. It doesn't mean that it should. It doesn't mean that it's optimal. And yes, periodically if you want to kind of do some cool feat of strength like a single leg a pistol squat or something great but as far as consistently uh you know incorporating it in your so i think we're going to start seeing that because i i know from posting things i've had so much feedback people saying like wow once i started the 90 degree joint thing my mobility actually freed up because my tissues were not so inflamed when i was using those extreme range of motions i get so inflamed so tight guess what I was losing my mobility, my range of motion. So I, I think a lot of people are starting to wake up to that. I think it's been a long enough time in the industry where the maximal mobility trend has been out there for so long that we've seen enough injuries and we've seen enough negative repercussions and the consequences from that. And people are starting to wise up a little bit when that whole concept of like, oh, you know, deeper range of motion, uh, you know, kind of was first promulgated maybe like say 10, 15 years ago. It was so new, we didn't see a lot of injuries yet. And I think we're starting to see people who started in the fitness industry 15 years ago. It's like, wow, they, they, they can't do it anymore. Their clients can't do it anymore. So how do they have to modify it? And so I think that that optimal range of motion, which generally speaking is around 90 degrees. And in my opinion, the best way to find that is with eccentric isometrics because your body ends up knowing it can feel where those optimal positions, those 90 degree positions are because they're, they're innate. They're built in uh, kind of intrinsic uh, mechanisms into our DNA. Good. Uh, quick advice for people struggling right now to kind of get off their ass and get moving. You know, I think the, the, the best thing is to start off with even just 10 minutes, just, you know, whether it's something, you know, you go for a walk and do like two planks and, and you know, maybe a few lunges or bodyweight squats, just get it going. The hardest thing is to get it going. Once you get that little bit of momentum, even just for like two or three days, and I've seen this even with, you know, nutrition and diet. Once you get that momentum going, it only takes a few days and you start to see just a little bit of results and it's self-motivating. You, your body is like, wow, this is, this is great. You're mentally, you're like, okay, I, I see where this is going. I'm feeling better. I can start to see progress. So get it going, get it started. And uh, the results will start to motivate you. So I, I think that's the biggest thing. Amazing. Dr. Joel Seaman, where can people find you? Um, yeah, they can find me at my website, advancedhumanperformance.com. 
um, on all the social media things on Instagram, just Dr. Joel Seidman, I think, um, you know, Facebook, YouTube, all that stuff. I got a, a men's health thing coming out pretty soon. They just did a photo shoot with me, which was exhausting because I was looking for three hours straight. I'm actually <laughs> still, speaking of soreness, I'm still a little sore from that. So, but uh, yeah, it'll be coming out soon. And then my book nice. on my website, uh, Movement Redefined, and then the program that you did, the uh, Functional Weight Training Eccentric Isometric Program, that's also on my website. Amazing. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I'm Joey Thurman. So another episode of the Fatter Future podcast. Remember, don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. <laughs>